When you compose a team of people from different backgrounds and work histories, you know, how do you harness all that potential? And some research found that the teams that were diverse but didn't have psychological safety performed much worse. They really needed that psychological safety to accelerate the value of diversity. Hello everyone, this is Barbara Humpton, CEO of Siemens USA, and thanks for listening to The Optimistic Outlook. This is our last episode of 2022, and it's become our tradition that for this episode, we like to break away from the infrastructure conversation and focus in on the core theme of optimism. One thing we covered this year is the idea that optimism isn't about seeing the world through rose-colored glasses. No, an optimist is not afraid to face reality and meet challenges head on because optimism is the deep-seated confidence that we have what it takes to find solutions and achieve success. Now, what are some of the behaviors that support optimism? If you go back to 2020, we heard from the poet and best-selling author Maggie Smith about how she learned to be an optimist. Last year, we then spoke to Eduardo Briseño. Eduardo shared how one of the most powerful beliefs we can possess is that we're capable of learning new things, developing a growth mindset. And today we have with us Connie Hadley to introduce us to the idea of psychological safety and why it leads to more innovative teams. We actually tiptoed into this concept with Eduardo when he compared proposing new ideas in a team setting to doing a high wire act. Are we the safety net for our teammates in these situations? Or are we more like sharks swimming in a pool of water underneath? Providing that safety net, providing that psychological safety supports the growth mindset that is so critical to the success of teams. And you know, I do want to tie this back to infrastructure in this moment in time. So make sure to stick around for my closing comments after the interview. Connie is an organizational psychologist and expert in her field. She's the founder of the Institute for Life at Work, a lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business, and a consulting researcher at Microsoft Research Lab. We were first connected through an event at Siemens, and I'm planning to ask a couple of the questions we received from my fellow Siemens leaders. Now, if you go to our show notes, you'll find links Connie provided that can serve as a psychological safety 101 for people who hear this episode and want to put this into practice. Take a listen. Connie, thanks so much for joining the podcast. It's great to continue our conversation. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. In my intro, I referred back to a conversation I had last year at about this time with Eduardo Briseño about growth mindset. And we learned in that episode that a critical experience for Eduardo was getting to collaborate with the growth mindset expert, Carol Dweck. And when you and I last spoke, you shared that you were mentored by someone who put the idea of team psychological safety on the map, Amy Edmondson at Harvard Business School. I'd like to hear more about it. Tell us what drew you to the topic and share what some of the highlights are of your own research. So Amy Edmondson, for those who don't know, is um, an incredible researcher at Harvard Business School. And she's written a book called The Fearless Organization, which is a real primer on psychological safety. But my experience goes back to her when she was much earlier in her career, back in 1999. That was a year that her seminal piece on psychological safety came out in the academic literature. And I just happened to be a junior doctoral student at the time in one of her classes and was really struck by this whole notion of having the ability to fully contribute yourself at work 
in every way, in the, the, the good stuff and the bad stuff. And for my dissertation, I ended up studying people who did really difficult jobs, human, sub, uh, human service jobs, where people were working with really um, challenging situations. So for example, emergency room doctors or social workers or special education teachers, anyone who was really serving a population in a way that triggered a lot of emotions. And I found that the people who were able to sustain those jobs without succumbing to the commonplace burnout were those that had a really tight group of peers around them. And through that peer connection, they were able to talk about the good and the bad of their jobs in a way that enabled them to, to grow and thrive despite the challenges. And so that, you know, again, reinforces this notion that we need to be able to have authentic, open conversations at work. That, that's what helps us do our jobs well. And it's also what helps us feel more human and sustainable in our jobs. Help us understand how you define psychological safety itself, and then what are some of the benefits of putting it into practice? Sure. Psychological safety is defined as a shared belief that a given team or group environment is safe for interpersonal risk-taking. There's a lot of sort of jargony words in there. Let me break them down. One of the most important ones is that it's a shared belief. And that means that psychological safety lives in the climate. It lives in the group dynamics, in, in what's in between people. So I might say I feel psychologically safe, but it's important not to think of this as a personal characteristic. I am a psychologically safe person. And so in this way, it's really different than the growth mindset, which is something that is exportable as a human being from place to place. Psychological safety is something that lives in the in-between. And it's shared in the sense is that we're really good as people, as, as member of, of teams and groups at assessing what's okay and what's not okay. Those implicit norms that exist, often unspoken. And so you'll find in given groups that you can pretty much see a, a common view of a group as being relatively safe or unsafe. So that's, that's one thing. Another aspect that I want to highlight is the interpersonal risk-taking and what that means. So the types of risks that carry some kind of potential pain for people in a workplace are things like admitting mistakes or challenging the status quo or offering a brand new idea or a contrary perspective or even just reaching out and saying that you need help or support or friendship from someone. And the reason those are risky is because in a workplace, people have the ability to meter out sort of punishments or rewards. And th that means that we're trying to find the ways to, to operate that will maximize the number of rewards we get and minimize the number of punishments. And so each of those aspects of risk-taking have some potential to have a negative consequence. And if you're in a psychologically safe environment, those risks have been really reduced. You're unlikely to face punishment or being sidetracked or ignored or ridiculed for taking those types of actions. Yes, so what I hear you saying is that while growth mindset kind of lives in each of us, it's psychological safety that lives in the team itself. I like the in-between spaces. It's, it's, the, the, uh, it's the environment we set for and with each other. As I said earlier, we had a discussion with some Siemens leaders 
And there were a couple of topics that I'd like to follow up on and maybe dig a little deeper into them um, and questions that came directly from my fellow leaders at Siemens. First, you laid out a scenario for us where a team had implemented the tools of psychological safety, but six months in, they see increases in the number of problem reports. And you asked us, what's our reaction to that? Well, a natural reaction is for us to say, oh, something must be wrong. We've got to go get to a root cause and fix it. But I loved when you challenged us and said, this might actually be a good sign. Tell us more about that. And in our teams, what are some of the things we can do to reinforce the idea that there's a positive reaction to being uncovering problems? Well, right. I, I love this exercise because uh, first it does go back to one of the original um, discoveries related to psychological safety that, that when Amy Edmondson was a graduate student and she was studying hospital teams, in her observation, the hospital teams, the dynamics that she observed, she could tell which ones seemed to be high performing, which ones weren't. But they found later when they correlated the, that data with the reports of errors by the hospital teams, that the ones that Amy had judged as the highest performing actually had higher numbers of errors. And so this was the conundrum that, that I think is important for all of us to understand for psychological safety. How can we have these two things happening at once? A dynamic uh, team environment that seems to welcome input and discussion and yet also more errors. It doesn't seem to add up. And, it, and the reason is that you have to get a little bit below the surface in terms of what are those dynamics and how do they relate to those specific errors. So what was happening was that earlier errors were being caught and discussed. And there were more of them because we're humans and we live in a complex world and a complex sets of tasks, whether it's healthcare or the work that you're doing at Siemens. And so there will inevitably be some little misguided uh, movements or some potential errors that are coming. But the sooner we can catch them, the, the lower the stakes involved in catching them, the better off we'll be long term. And that's what having that psychological safety uh, allows you to, to develop. So your question about how do you approach that? How do you think that? I think, first of all, it is reframing what errors are to you. Um, are you thinking about errors as something that need to be su suppressed and avoided at all costs? Are you thinking about them as an indicator of communication? Are you thinking about it as an indicator also of experimentation and taking um, you know, new steps forward that will, again, of course, involve some degree of failure? So we want to avoid, like putting back to the healthcare concept, we want to avoid running towards very damaging mistakes. We don't want to leave anyone injured or, or you know, worse off from the actions of the team. So it's not that we all want to go towards mistakes per se, but we want to acknowledge that we're human, we're doing tough, complex things, and then mistakes will happen. So let's open up the conversation to catch them early and then prevent worse things from happening and also learn from those early mistakes in a way that we can prevent even the small things from continuing to happen. So it's, it's really kind of keeping yourself focused on the ultimate goal, but at the same time acknowledging the process itself will involve some risk and some messiness. Those psychologically safe teams will actually uproot more errors. They'll, they'll find them, they'll fix them and, and move on and achieve great results. That's inspiring. Listen, I also wanna to touch on the principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I understand you've had a chance to talk to our leader for DEI within Siemens, Michelle Grant. 
Uh, you know that we're using every muscle we have to advance DEI as a business imperative at Siemens. And a key priority here is the idea of belonging. So it's said quite simply, belonging transforms. What is research revealing about how psychological safety supports DEI? It's a critical accelerant to the benefits of diversity. There's been uh, longstanding research examining how when you compose a team of people from different backgrounds and work histories, you know, how do you harness all that potential? How do you get to the best of that variance that's involved in your inputs into this process? And if you do not have psychological safety, most likely you will not achieve the full potential. And some research by recent research by Amy Edmondson and Henrik Bresman looked at pharmaceutical teams, for example, and they found that that the teams that were diverse but didn't have psychological safety performed much worse. They really needed that psychological safety to accelerate the value of diversity. And from a psychological standpoint, I would explain it going back to the notion of conflict. So in order to learn, in order to do new innovative things, you have to understand that there will be differences. There'll be no exact formula anyone can follow. You're making it up, you're discovering it together. So there's gonna be sort of conflicting ideas about the task. You know, what are we trying to do? What does success look like? There'll be conflicting ideas about the process. How do we get from here to there? What's the best approach? You want that diversity as you're, as you're planning your work as a team. You want that diversity because that's where you're gonna get the best ideas and you're gonna prevent a lot of problems because you have already anticipated new, new things. So the diversity requires those, again, going back to it, it requires those conversations and it also requires a way to accept that my way, my ideas, my perspective may not be the same as yours and not take it so personally and not view it as a challenge to me as a human being. Teams benefit from task conflict, they benefit from process conflict. Generally, do not benefit from interpersonal conflict. And interpersonal conflict is the thing that arises, again, when people don't feel that they can have a respectful and open conversation about differences of opinions or perspectives or ideas. And unfortunately, there's a commonplace approach of just it's called the add diversity and stir approach uh, to work life these days, which is sort of saying, you know, let's put a bunch of different people in a room and see what happens. Well, without guiding principles for those conversations and managing that conflict, good things aren't going to happen, or at least not the best things. So we really need to add that, that level of psychological safety, which is a discipline that teams do not have typically without intentional effort. Connie, it's it's clear how psychological safety really is essential for DEI. Tell us about the profile of an inclusive leader. How do those concepts relate? I'm happy to talk about that. Because as I said, psychological safety lives, lives in the team. Every single team member has a role to play in creating psychological safety. That said, the leader of the team carries enormous weight in setting the norms and the practices of that team. And again, this is partially because this person has more power to dispense rewards and punishments given their positional power. So one of the things that I've been examining in my own research is what does it look like? What are the behaviors associated with being an inclusive leader, the kind of leader who does invite that kind of participation from others? And one of the first things that I was looking at was how much are they demonstrating 
their own psychological safety with the people that report to them and with and to those that they report to. So are they willing to admit their own mistakes? Are they willing to say, I don't know? Are they willing to, to say, this is an opportunity for me to learn and grow? Articulating that, demonstrating that goes a long way in making it safe for other people. And in fact, there's some recent research by uh, Kul Tafaris and Grant that looked at um, very senior leaders and they randomly assigned them to either invite feedback on themselves from the members of their team and the board, or they just disclosed feedback, constructive feedback they'd received to the members of the, their, their team and their board. And they found that actually the disclosure of receiving of that feedback they received carried more long-term gain in terms of building psychological safety. And that is because even when we just say we wanna hear feedback, people may not quite trust it. They may be waiting for the sign that it's really safe and no one wants to go first. So if you instead as a leader decide, I'm gonna go first, I'm gonna share with you things that I have learned about myself that I don't know or I don't do as well. These are the things I'm working on. I don't, I really want you to continue to give me this kind of feedback that will make me a better leader then people over time begin to trust that and engage in that process. So the leaders, and we know this, the, the walk the talk, you know, is overused, but this really is very much the case in psychological safety. If you as a leader are not just demonstrating the same behaviors you're expecting others to behave on your team, then why should they? Yeah, we've got a lot to learn about this, and and we've got a we've got to put a lot of practice into this to to build the ability to just naturally include these principles um, when when we're working together. Have you observed hesitance among leaders to adopt the principles of psychological safety? And if so, how do we get more people engaged into putting this into practice? Hmm. Yes, I have observed a lot of hesitation. And the hesitation comes at uh, a number of different angles, comes from a different a number of different angles. So first you have some hesitation about people who don't really feel that it's necessary to hear from more people. This is the, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of mentality. This is an example of where someone is saying um, they're aren't new possibilities out there. We've discovered the best processes or we've refined it to the point where this is the way we should be going forward. And that lack of openness is, is an issue. And I would like to change it to think about saying, well, I can give you lots of business case reasons. I didn't even mention previously the, the benefits we see in learning, innovation, team effectiveness, inclusion, relationship building, uh, and so forth from psychological safety. but. But really, at the end of the day, it's this idea of possibility. Like, what if it could be even better than the way we've done it in the past? What if there's more out there that we haven't tapped into yet? So embracing this idea of possibility is the first issue I would say leaders need to get over. The second thing is that they tend to, to feel like, well, it's too difficult to change people's behavior. People are stuck in their ways or, you know, they're old, they're, they are who they are and this is what I'm dealing with, so I'm going to continue on. And that misses how much that environment shapes the behavior of the people. In fact, I thought I might give you an example of someone that I interviewed to talked about how her own behavior was modified by a situation where there was a lack of psychological safety. 
Uh, this person um, who's a senior grant administrator at a research institution said, you know, when I came into this job, I was eager, excited, and a big contributor. As I faced personal confrontation and other events with my manager, it decreased my confidence in myself and my, I found myself retreating. I found myself not wanting to put my ideas out there. I found myself not speaking up in meetings where I used to be really vocal. And I found myself just trying to hide. I just didn't want to deal with receiving that level of negativity um, back for my actions. And so here is an example of where I would say to a manager who's saying, you know, oh, I can't change someone. You may be already shaping the behavior of your people in a negative way and you haven't realized it yet. So instead, think about all the possibilities that you can have, all the ways that you can shape towards the positive. You can take that same person and bring them back out of their shell, increase their confidence, increase their engagement in the process. So yes, you can have a lot of influence over other people's behavior. Now, the next hurdle that I think people um, tend to fall into is this idea that it's just too time consuming. I don't have time, I'm too busy, our days are already packed. I can't squeeze this in. And here again, I will say, flip it around to say, you know, what's worth your time? What's worth the investment of your time? Is it getting the best out of all those inputs you have? You've hired these people for a reason. Don't you want the best of them? And so it is time. It is an investment. It is breaking some of the routines that you may have already. But over the long haul, it's going to save you time. Because again, thinking back to those hospital teams, you're gonna catch the small errors faster. And wouldn't you rather catch the small errors than have to deal with the big crisis later? And then the fourth issue that I find is people worry they're going to do it wrong. They, they worry they're, gonna, they're going to make a mistake by inviting input and make things worse. And I can appreciate this. But let me give you another example of, a, of a, a situation that was just told to me recently about a, a person who is working in a senior position in an organization. And her manager, every time her manager starts to ask about how that person is feeling, says, I'm sorry, I don't want to intrude. I don't want to know. And she said that over time, it, it, it sends this mixed signal that this person seems to want to engage with her, but is not confident enough to follow through on that process. And so she's sort of saying, I don't want to have this conversation anymore with this person. She would rather that person go all the way forward and say, I probably will get some of this wrong, but I want to hear from you. I really, I, I, I don't want to hold you to hold back in, in because of my own fears about doing this wrong. And I said ground rules when I have conversations, tough conversations with people that one of them I call the the, the oops, um, the ouch, the oh, and the okay. Those are like four norms that you can have to create a conversation with people that will allow for mistakes to happen. And the oops one is, is the ability for you to take back something that you say that maybe came out wrong or, or didn't really reflect what you actually meant. And, and, and that sort of gives you the grace to be able to say, okay, I might, I might make a mistake here. The ouch is the you know, signal to say to someone else, that hurt um, what you just said, that actually, that I don't appreciate the way you said that. And again, it gives you a simple language that allows those conversations to unfold. And then the O is like, tell me more. Like, oh, I'd like to hear more. And then the okay is there are also conversations at some point where you're like, I got it. <laughs> Thank you, I got your input, okay. And so just thinking about the ways that we can go forward together, um, acknowledging that this is a bumpy and challenging process 
But having good intentions um, needs to be matched with good effort in order to make a difference. So, well, yeah, lots of techniques here for leaders to use. And Connie, one of the things we're doing right now, we're a large organization, 40,000 people across the United States. And so we have lots of data, the feedback we can use to, to try to draw connections and uh, correlations, maybe causal effects. One of the things we're really looking at is the linkage between environmental health and safety and business results. Another is the linkage between trust and business results. Mm -hmm. And I'm convinced that we see strong correlations between our leaders who create a safe and healthy environment and the business results their teams are able to generate. And I'm hopeful that's gonna be the most compelling argument we make of all uh, for why psychological safety matters to our business. But, but here's another question from the team. And what are some ways to measure the current psychological safety level of a team and track our progress? Well, there are thankfully already scientifically developed questionnaires that you can offer. The one I use um, ranges between five and seven questions. So it's not total, very uh, burdensome in order to administer. And it includes questions like, is this a safe place for you to speak up about concerns you have? Or can you go to your team members for help if you need something? Or is this the kind of place where people are punished when they make mistakes? So those kinds of questions in aggregate can give you a pulse on whether this team, this specific team has psychological safety or not, or really to what degree it does. So that's a great place to start using a quantitative measure. But the problem is, is that it doesn't exactly give you enough data to really design your interventions. It's just giving you a sense of the, the, the state, but not how to change it. So for that, I like going to two different um, other more qualitative types of data collection methods. The first is you can actually add on to a survey more open-ended questions. So for example, I recently did a survey where I said, you know, do you, on a scale of one to 10, how safe do you feel speaking up here? And then tell me a little bit about your answer. And just giving people a few sentences to, to fill in about why they said yes, no, or a little bit, not quite, really gives you a lot of great data. But I also really like talking to people in an interview or in a small focus group where you can push a little bit more. Tell me, get an example of this. And you know, what about when you observed someone else speaking up and you thought they were punished? What happened? Why do you think that happened? Or tell me about a time when you didn't speak up and you wish you had. And what do you think could have happened instead? And that's, again, where you start to really understand the dynamics of what's going on, and it will be different for every team and every workplace. Yes, you will find some common themes about um, certain types of situations or behaviors and other people that inhibit in uh, sharing, but there might be specifics. Um, and so then once you sort of collect, the, you can collect your baseline data on the actual amount, then you can collect a lot of insights about what's going on and, and what remedies could be employed. Then you make some changes and then you track things over time. And there are a few examples out there, a few case studies where, where people can access to learn more about how other companies have done it. So one is ANZ Bank. This is Australia, New Zealand Bank. And they have a lovely piece where they describe the process. And they said over five years, their points went up by 10, 10 points on their scale. 
And I think, I don't know actually what the bottom, like the denominator of that scale is, I'm assuming maybe 100 out of 100, but so maybe a 10% improvement, but that's, that's great. I mean, we should also sort of be able to say to ourselves, like, it, this is not a goal to check off and be done. Making, you know, small, gradual, continual progress over time is still worth doing. So you won't transform your culture overnight and you won't ever be done with it. But I hope that people use some kind of ongoing tracking mechanism to at least keep an eye on what's happening. That's valuable advice. Thanks so much. Connie, it has been great to have you on the podcast. And I want to close out with one of my classic questions. If we're successful in applying everything you've discussed, how does this benefit our future? Well, I will reiterate, there is a strong business case. If you have a, a company or an, an organization that wants to innovate, that wants to be a leader in its field in terms of productivity and efficiency, you're going to want psychological safety. So there we go. Like this is the bottom line reason. And so if you have more psychological safety in the world, you have healthier and more su successful companies. But I also think the more important benefit to the world is what it's like to work in a place of psychological safety. Going back to that example that I shared before where someone felt their psychological safety sapped them of their engagement at work, diminish their confidence, make their voice small. If we can do the opposite, if we can create places of psychological safety throughout the world, we will enable people to bring their full selves to the workplace, to feel that sense of mutual respect and confidence that will keep them engaged, that will reduce the amounts of vacant jobs out there, that will enable people to sort of stand tall in themselves because of their knowledge that their contributions matter and are valued and appreciated in the workplace. And that's the kind of world I would love everyone to work in. We want to work in that world too. Thank you so much, Connie. Think about the topics we've covered in this podcast. How to address America's crumbling infrastructure, how to address the climate crisis, or how to reinvigorate American manufacturing. We've experienced many years now of vision setting where we've talked about the possibilities of transformation. Now, this is a different moment. Out of disruption, over the past year, we've seen both business and government stepping up to the plate and putting plays into action to see the emergency of policies and, and business initiatives that are shaping a more sustainable, more resilient, more equitable future. This moment is less about what we could do or even what we shouldn't do. It's about getting down to work and working together the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, the Chips and Science Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, all of these are forces that are now shaping this decade of action. And businesses are stepping up. This is the decade of action. This multi-year effort is gonna require a mindset shift. It compels us to embrace principles like psychological safety that help us manage teams more effectively as we take on the important work ahead of us. It compels us to embrace that growth mindset, telling us we don't need to repeat things exactly the way we've done them in the past. We can do things better. So I hope you learned from this conversation and I'll remind you now to go to our show notes for more information from Connie. I'd also love to hear about your own experience, bringing psychological safety to your teams. 
share a comment with me on LinkedIn or email us at optimist.us at Siemens.com. Thanks for listening. Please follow us on social media and on your favorite podcasting platform. Thank you for tuning in.